You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR is radical radio, and that means more than just alternative current affairs and political coverage. We're radical because we're an independent media outlet, owned and operated by the community. We're radical because we give communities the control of their own shows, with their own music, in their own languages. We're radical because we provide a media platform for communities to build their own power to create social change. Become a subscriber and support Radical Radio. Call us on 03 9419 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction in the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen the Anarchist Woolless Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. This program is coming to you from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. The program is a podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. And if you wonder what Anarchy is all about, Anarchos without rulers. What gives rulers the ability to determine the fate of billions of people? Inequalities in power and wealth. So the anarchist struggle is the struggle to devolve or share power, possibly through direct democratic means. It's the struggle to hold wealth in common and use it for the common good. Very simple concepts, nothing radical about them. What is radical is the extent to which those who hold power and wealth will go to to ensure that they continue to expand their power and increase their wealth. That's the radical nature of society, not those people involved in that struggle to devolve power and share wealth. Now, it's been a wonderful week for a variety of reasons, and uh, it was good to see so many Australian politicians paying homage to power and wealth this week. It's just one of those weeks. Now, we all know that uh, General Subianto... Uh, has been elected president, courtesy of the Indonesian people, of the Republic of Indonesia. Now, most of you wouldn't know his patchy background. Some of the older listeners may. But it's interesting that a man who was dishonourably discharged, I'll say it again, dishonourably discharged from the Indonesian military in 1998, 26 years later, becomes president 
of Indonesia. Now, General Subianto has a patchy record, especially in East Timor and to a lesser degree in West Papua. And in terms of uh, uh, disappearing democratic activists in the transition between the Suharto dictatorship and the beginning of a democratic movement in Indonesia. So he's got a patchy record as far as human rights is concerned. Nobody's actually been able to pin anything on him. But very patchy record. Now president of Indonesia. Obviously, he'll be working hard to try to maintain the the colonial expansion, especially in West Papua and uh, Sumatra and many other island uh, areas in Indonesia. But what I found fascinating was how quickly the Australian political classes were effusive in their praise of Subianto to the extent that our Defence Minister rushed over to Indonesia and gave Mr General President Subianto a nice big hug. Well, obviously, this is going to have a lot of impact as far as the West Papuan independence movement is concerned because Subianto has a long history of using, as a former defence minister, of using the Indonesian military as a mechanism of reining in any struggle for autonomy and independence. Now, interestingly, the West Papuan office will be holding an open day on Sunday the 7th of April, beginning with lunch at 1pm, and there will be a one-hour discussion between Dr Jacob Rumbiak, who's the... um, West, who is the West Papuan's transitional government's uh, foreign affairs minister, speaking about the effect that the election of a alleged war criminal and man who was dishonourably discharged from the Indonesian armed forces because of his activities been elected as president will have on the West Papua independence uh, struggle. So if you can put that day in your diary, if you're in Melbourne, it's an important day, but I'll talk about that later on. Now, paying homage to wealth in power, it's not just about what's happening overseas, it's about what's happening here. Now, I don't think any of the listeners to the Anarchist World this week would have got uh, an invitation to the Pratt extravaganza. You know, Pratt, the good friend of, uh, you know... Mr. Trump, uh, director, not director, owner of Vizzy Enterprises, one of the uh, most uh, powerful people behind the scenes in this country regarding uh, politics, and I said behind the scenes. He had a big shindig Mother Brown event last week at his little hacienda in Melbourne. And they were all there, paying homage to wealth. We saw the Australian politicians pay homage to power, as far as Subianto is concerned. Now we see them pay homage to Pratt. Our beloved Prime Minister was there. The former Victorian uh, Premier was there. The current Victoria Premier was there. They even had some uh, singer, some entertainer, who's paid a fair bit of money to come and uh, serenade the guests. And they're all there having a good time. Now, 
I've got nothing against people having a good time. But I didn't actually see any uh, Australians, ordinary Australians there at the party. Not that I went. I didn't get an invitation for some reason. I understand. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a mover and shaker. I owe people, I owe the bank's money. Why shouldn't I get an invitation? But I didn't get an invitation, I'm sure. You're all crying in your soup because you didn't get an invitation. But the fact is that this is the way that politics runs in this country. When I say that we don't live in a democratic society, and we don't live in a democratic society for a number of reasons, and one of the main reasons is the public is not engaged in the political process, so to a large degree it's our fault, not listeners to the program, but generally we like to leave it to the politicians and we like to complain. But the fact is, and I know this is boring because I speak about it every week, but the trouble with politics is about repetition. You know, 26 million people living on a continent, and we've, you know, you've got 1.2 million, I think, children living in poverty. Just extraordinary things. And private charities raising money to send Australian kids to public schools. Just extraordinary stuff in this country. And you get people like Pratt billionaires, billionaires, you know, holding these little shindigs for their mates, not just in the political scene, but, you know, movers and shakers, the so-called movers and shakers of society. And that's the problem. That is the problem. We pay homage to power and wealth, whether it's intellectually, whether it's culturally, whether it's socially, whether it's politically, we as a society pay homage to those who exercise power and those who have wealth. And then you've got the intersection of power and wealth, where wealth corrupts power. Now, we could solve the housing crisis tomorrow, and I'll talk about it later on in the program. We could solve the issue of childhood poverty tomorrow. We could introduce a universal basic income tomorrow. There are many things we could do as a society tomorrow. And we don't do them because our political processes have been corrupted. Not in terms of people like in the Bjelke-Peterson era handing over politicians, you know, brown paper envelopes full of cash, not that type of vulgar corruption, but a more insidious, a more cultural corruption, a corruption which is based on the fear of political representatives not being re-elected because a small minority of people own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication, especially communication. It's that type of corruption which is encompassing. I mean, why can't Parliament pass legislation? And I'm not, I'm not talking about revolution, blood in the streets, people being hung you know, off lampposts. I'm talking about why can't Parliament, which theoretically represents the Australian people, pass legislation to resolve some of the most pressing issues in this country, issues which shouldn't be 
issues in this country. It's because the parliamentary agenda, the type of legislation which is able to be pushed through parliament, is determined by those who have the wealth to be able to manipulate the political process to such an extent that any parliamentary legislation which is passed by our so-called representatives favours them. It doesn't favour the public, the great mass of people. It favours them. And that's the dilemma we face. While we have this nexus between power and wealth in this country, and we have a media, whether it's social media or asocial media or legacy media, which goes into raptures every time there is some minor push for some minor legislative changes. And the disinformation and misinformation regarding these changes is just extraordinary. Just extraordinary. So, and to a significant degree, it's our fault because... We as a people are not engaged. I mean, if we had a Martian come down today and, you know, observe what's going on in Australia today, they would go, my God, my gods, whatever. I don't know if Martians have gods or not. Who knows? They'd say, what? Really? This in this rich land? This in this land with a miserable 26 million people, population growth? This in a land where you're, the mineral resources are just extraordinary. You're allowing all this to go into the hands and pockets of a insignificant minority of people, the 1% that own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. And you expect one third of the population on social security benefits to live a hand-to-mouth existence. And you expect 60% of Australians who are, you know, who, who, who pay... 70% of Australians who pay income tax, you expect them to support the system? Really? You really support this type of system? You're happy to squabble over the crumbs which are brushed off the corporate table every day? Really? I think the poor old Marshall would go back in his or her spaceship and piss off back to Mars. Just extraordinary things. So power, wealth, is the centre of the anarchist struggle. It's the centre of a lot of, not just anarchist struggle, political struggles. It's about devolving power, sharing wealth. It's about creating institutions which don't allow the prats and the subiantos of the world to dominate life. Because, you see, legislation has a profound impact on the population as a whole. It's all very well to work for a charity or do some good, and I'm not disparaging what people do in order to assist people, but what legislation does, it, it can improve the lives of the whole population. While charity work is basically about trying trying the best way you can to ameliorate the worst excesses of society.
one piece of legislation, one piece of legislation can be much more effective than the efforts which are put in by 32,000 registered charities in this country. And again, ultimately, as I keep saying, democracy is not just rule of the people, by the people, for the people. It's rule of the people, by the people, for the people, by an engaged public, where there are rights incorporated into the constitutional fabric of our society. Think about it. Think about it next time you see a television ad asking you to give money to a, you know, Australian kids to send them to school. Think about it next time you see somebody sleeping rough on the streets. Think about it when you get one of those hard luck stories, you know, real hard luck stories in this country which appear on social media or the legacy media. Think about it every time you have a problem paying your bills. Think about it because the reality is that ultimately the type of society we create is interlinked with the amount of energy we are willing to put into it. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. <clears throat> Let's move on. That's a frog in my throat. Now, I've been thinking lately. Yes, I know it's a dangerous thing to think because when you think you start getting annoyed and angry and you may even actually do something in life. I'm thinking about Australia's cultural stillbirth. I've been thinking that I've been thinking about the failed voice referendum and the impact it will have not just on treaty and you know truth telling I mean it's obviously it's put those struggles back generations I mean we had a fancy we had a really interesting coalition of people who are working independently but unknown to each other working together uh, to uh, defeat the voice referendum. We had the uh, Black Sovereign Movement, we had the White Racists, we had the National Party, which had no bar of it, and we had the Liberal Party, and the list goes on and on. Now, the actual voice issue was a very, very minor reform. Nothing, neither here or there. But it has had a profound impact on Australian culture. See, the problem is in, in settler societies, and settler societies are societies where First Nations people have basically been pushed aside by people who've come in and taken over that land. And it's interesting, the type of culture that we've created in this country since colonisation began in 1788 and to a significant degree that culture has revol revolved around two things the old bread and circuses it's revolved around sport 
and it's revolved about acquisition of goods. And if you look at Australian culture, there are huge, huge issues because in a settler society or a multicultural society, what you find is in the first and possibly the second generation of settlers that they hold on to the culture of the mother country. But after that, once you get to the third generation, that fascination or that connection disappears. And what do we have in its place? We have an acquisitive society, a consumer society, that's part of our cultural values. We have a society which ignores the past. And we have a society which is really interested in circuses, whether it's a concert or whether it's a, you know, a sporting fixture. And I think, not believe, but think, know, that the, if the voice referendum had been successful, we as a people could have embarked on a program, or it's not a program, but a, a journey. We could have embarked on a journey to create a specific Australian culture, which wasn't just based on acquisition of consumer goods and circuses, but an Australian culture which valued the input of First Nations people an Australian culture which valued the citizens and residents of this continent, an Australian culture which put, which put the individual, the rights of the individual, before the rights of corporations. It would have been the beginning of a different cultural journey. And it pains me, now that I'm in, a, you know, in, in my 70s, it pains me to see there has been no change in that cultural awareness, no change as a society. Obviously, individuals change. But as a society, it's all about acquiring wealth. It's all about distraction, all about circuses not about engagement in the day-to-day -day activities of this country. We leave it to the politicians. We leave it to the experts. We leave it to the media. We leave it to our religious leaders. Think about it. So I'm very sad about the, this cultural stillbirth. And all I can say is we wasted totally wasted for a variety of, you know, mixed up reasons, an opportunity not just to move towards recognition, treaty, truth-telling, but to move towards the creation of specific culture, an Australian culture, which actually promoted values which would benefit each and every one of us. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. 
My name is Joseph Lascaux. I'm hosting today's program. Let's move on. Now, if you find yourself in a Melbourne town on Friday the 1st of March, I'm inviting you to the inaugural, I know we're at 202 years too late, but the inaugural James Strater Day commemoration at the eight-hour monument, which is just across the road from Trades Hall in Melbourne. The eight-hour monument is only about 50 metres from the Tanaminoe Mulbohina monument. Uh, it's, a, you know, it's easy to find. So who was James Strater? Why commemorate, celebrate the 1st of March? Well, it's an interesting story and it really highlights the beginning of people coming together to improve their situation. It's quite an extraordinary story which most people are not aware of. Now, James Strater was a convict and he, you know, was doing what convicts do, providing free labour for gentlemen of name and quality who obtained three land in the early days through the colonisation process and genocide. Now, Mr Strater was sentenced at the Liverpool Court in Sydney on the 1st of March, 18. 22, that's right, 202 years ago, for the, uh, to 500 lashes of the whip, and if he survived that, four months solitary confinement on bread and water, and if he survived that, he was to serve the rest of his sentence at uh, Port Macquarie where the recidivist convicts were sent in New South Wales. So what was... The charge sheet, and you can see this if you go to the Facebook page, Joseph Toscana, you can actually see the charge sheet, or if you um, go on the net, you may be able to come across the charge sheet. What was his charge? What was his heinous crime? What this, did this man do that have, has had such a profound impact on this continent, this country, post-colonisation? Well, Mr Strater was charged with the heinous crime of exciting, that's the word, exciting his master's servants to combine. That's the key word, to combine, in order to oblige his master to increase their wages and improve their rations or otherwise to destroy their master's property in the sheep entrusted to their care. Big charge. I don't think you'll find in the legislation today, but I'll, I'll read it out again. Not read it out. It's embedded in my brain because I don't read on the Anarchist World this week. The charge, once again, excite his master's servants to combine in order to oblige him to increase their wages and improve their rations or otherwise to destroy their master's 
property in the sheep entrusted to their care. 1st of March 1822, and obviously he was found guilty and that was the, the sentence. But let's go back. Let's go back to the origins of this country. Because let's, let's not forget the convicts didn't come here f- of their own free will, you know, to, you know, to acquire these Australian values based on the acquisition of uh, goods and circuses. They were transported here for a variety of reasons. Now, Mr Strater was transferred from one sheep run to another sheep run. Now, who owned these sheep runs? These are the early days of colonisation. This is, what, 34 years after colonisation began in Australia. So the early days were based on three principles. Genocide, three land, three labour. And it wasn't about mass migration... It was about a gentleman of name and quality coming to this country and because of the class system, the stratified British class system, they automatically received land grants and automatically were assigned convicts to work for them. Now, I'm sure that if I got a a land grant and I got slaves to work for me, I'd make a bloody good profit. And so they did. They made extraordinary profits. So Mr Strater was a convict who was working in one particular sheep run and he was transferred to another sheep run by the government of the day. Obviously, you know, certain owners had more privileges than others. He was transferred to the, uh, how shall I put it, the squatter's run of uh, Mr Hannibal MacArthur. Now, Mr Strater was a little bit peeved off when he arrived at his new employment because although theoretically they were supposed to be paid £5 a year, all that money went in board and they were basically paid in rations. And the rations were £6 of meat a week and £17 of flour. So when Mr Strater, James Strater, was transferred from one station to another, his wheat ration was decreased from £17 a week to £9 a week. It was almost halved. It was about 60% of what he was used to getting. So he got a little bit of stropolis. He started to open his mouth. He started to talk to his fellow ticket of leave men and convicts regarding that lambing season was coming soon and they could actually combine to improve their situation. That was the key, to combine, to combine, to form a union. And for that heinous crime, which would have broken the backbone of the genocide three land, three labour triangle, which was at the very heart of the settlements in New South Wales and Tasmania at that particular point in time, that he was sentenced to such a severe sentence. 
Interestingly, six years later in 1828, the Masters and Servants Act was passed and the Masters and Servants Act ensured that workers were basically nothing more than servants, property of their employers, whether they were ticket of leave, men and women, whether they were currency lads and lasses, and currency lads and lasses is a term for the descendants of the uh, convicts, first-generation descendants who demanded to be paid in cash, not in terms of uh, rations, or people who, you know, finish their sentence who are now working independently for other people. So it's all about it's all about this 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 triangle that people don't seem to look at. That triangle, you know, free land, free labour, genocide. Genocide, free land, free labour. The foundation stones of this country. So James Strater, the fact that he opened his mouth and he encouraged his fellow workers to, com- to try to combine to improve their situation is one of the first examples of people in this continent, colonisers in this continent, coming together in order to improve their situation. And the key about trade unionism or workplace activity is people combining together to improve their situation. 202 years later, we've forgotten that lesson. People who are members of trade unions in many regards are treated as criminals in this country. Trade unionists have less rights legally in many situations than somebody who imports a billion dollars of meth into this country. It's illegal to strike outside an enterprise bargaining agreement period in this country. Anybody involved in an occupation, workplace occupation in this country can be jailed to up to 25 years under the current legislation. Any worker, individual worker, who strikes outside an enterprise bargaining agreement can be fined up to $10,000 a day. And the list goes on and on. So in 202 years, what we've seen is legislation after legislation after legislation being passed through both houses of parliament in this country to actually prevent people from combining to improve their situation. No wonder wage increases currently are less than the rate of inflation and people are jumping up and down because wages have increased. They seem to forget that in the majority of cases it's less than the rate of inflation, while the wages of CEOs have increased by 30% in the last few years. They don't worry about inflation, they make it. So those of you who are interested, there may be a half a dozen or a dozen or more or less in uh, marking this day, you're invited to join us, the Annex Institute, join us 
on the 1st of March. They had our monument across the road from Melbourne Trades Hall, midday to 1pm, and then for a, a light lunch. Bring food and drinks to share with your friends. It's a historic day. It's a day that should be remembered. Well, one of us remembers it. It'll, it'll be continue to be part of this country's historical background. But it's not just about history. I mean, the events we organise is not about just commemorating the past. It's about combining the past and the present so we can change the future. When I talk about an Australian development of an Australian culture, that's what I'm talking about, about using that historical precedent, which in many cases has been hidden away, forgotten, left in a dusty drawer, left for somebody to do a master's or PhD on and then forgotten. It's up to us to resurrect those struggles and connect them with what's happening in this country today if we want change. If we want, you know, more bread and circuses, well, that's the nature of the day-to-day game, but we can break out of that. So welcome you. Come on the 1st of March. It'll be a, a, a yearly event from now on. And hopefully over time, it'll grow, not just in terms of numbers, but grow in terms of the uh, impact it has on other people living in this country. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia, other community radio network. Yeah, interesting. It's been another look. Fasc- hey, look, every week is fascinating, you know, but uh, some weeks a little bit more fascinating than others. Well, the gar the carnage continues in Gaza, although it seems to have dropped out of the news. And uh, the fascinating thing is, our hospitals in Gaza have now become primary targets for the Israeli military forces, not just. Uh, the civilian population but now and their basic infrastructure but now actually hospital and healthcare workers because see hospitals and healthcare workers tend to keep people alive now as i speak the death toll in gaza since the 7th of october approaches 30,000 and the injuries over 70,000 but and of that death toll, unlike in the Ukraine, which has been involved in a war for the last two years where they've lost over 10,000 civilians and 31,000 soldiers have been killed in the Ukraine in the last two years. In the last, what, five months in Gaza, we've seen the death of over 30,000 people, the great majority civilians and a significant minority Children under 12. Over 8,000. And now we hear the Prime Minister of Israel talk about total victory. It's fascinating how the language of the oppressed becomes the language of of the oppressors. Total victory in Gaza as if a total military victory will resolve the issue of Palestinian independence and the creation of a Palestinian state. All this total military victory will do 
is harden the attitudes of the survivors of this carnage, especially the children who will provide the next generation of fighters in Gaza. Now, in case you think this is a brilliant military victory, I mean, the Ukraine is a, you know, a reasonably large place with a long border. Now, Gaza is about a third the size of Melbourne, half the size of Canberra. It had about 2.3 million people. It was, the, it was the world's biggest prison. That's right, the world's biggest prison since the blockade on Gaza when they elected Hamas as their representatives in Gaza and throughout the Palestinian Authority. Biggest prison. Blockaded since 2016. And obviously, when they broke out, there were atrocities committed. People forget the 75-year history which led to those atrocities being committed in the southern Israel. We think the Israel, that the Palestinian conflict began on the 7th of October 2023, began 70 years previously when the Palestinians were evicted from land at the point of a gun which they settled for over 2,000 years. To a large degree, it reminds me of Australia. I know it's uh, maybe a long bow, but could you imagine if the 4% of Australians who have claimed to have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander heritage suddenly found themselves in the powerful situation of asking the 96% of descendants of the settlers, which includes me and you possibly, to move on because they've come back to reclaim their land. And that's only after about 230 years plus. So the carnage continues and the hypocrisy continues. And that's the key, is the hypocrisy. We saw the outpouring of grief, and I understand the outpouring of grief regarding what's been happening in the Ukraine in the past two years, which is very understandable in the media, the legacy media and the social media, and the list goes on and on. But where's the outpouring of grief for the Palestinian women and children? I mean, in our little walk, that our little 30-kilometre walk, it's now extended from 25 kilometres to almost 30 kilometres, where every metre we pass a body of somebody, a Gazan resident, and every third body is the body of a child, if we're really lucky, we may see one militant for every hundred bodies. I mean, there is... Think about it. But think about the response in Australia and the rest of the Western world. The response to remove aid to drive the rest of the Gazans who are basically living a hand-to-mouth existence into famine by removing any aid because maybe, maybe at the behest of the Israeli Secret Service, maybe, maybe eight people working for the United Nations were actually part of the Hamas force which uh, entered and caused destruction in southern Israel. Maybe. What about the other 2.1 million? 
Just an extraordinary situation, but the extraordinary thing is the hypocrisy. Some lives are very, very important, and other lives don't really matter, do they? And that's what creates hatred. And it's that hatred which creates the next generation of terrorists or freedom fighters, depending on what side you're on. Because there is no military solution. I mean, for the Prime Minister of Israel to smile when he talks about a complete military victory against a population which is, you know, doesn't have tanks, doesn't have aircraft, doesn't have, you know, sophisticated missiles. And it's taken five months to get to that, that stage and you call this a complete military victory. And the fact is, everybody seems to have forgotten, the carnage which occurred in southern Israel should not have occurred if the Israeli intelligence services, Mossad, and the, and the Israeli military had been doing their job. They were more interested in expanding settlements in the West Bank and East Jerusalem than actually keeping an eye on what was happening in Gaza. Think about it. The world's supposedly most sophisticated intelligence service had no idea there was going to be a breakout out of Gaza by Hamas militants to create carnage in southern Israel. Had no idea. And now the Israeli military, supposedly the most powerful military in the Middle East, obviously aided and abetted and supported by Australia as well as the United States to a lesser degree Australia, you know, it's taken five months to get to this situation where they may have a total military victory. Extraordinary. The hypocrisy. The hypocrisy surrounding this is just extraordinary. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Now, madness. Now, I, I know I'm... I, I know I'm stupid. I mean, to be s sitting here talking to you, I, I've got to be stupid, but sometimes I come across things that are more stupid than you can actually think about. Now, the Australian government, right, as the Commonwealth government, is providing $415,000 per dwelling via a government subsidy to assist community and social housing. All right? They're giving $415,000 per subsidy, as a subsidy, which will help to create more community and social housing, which will be then be owned by private organisations who pick and choose who they house. Right. At the same time, Australia's super funds are now going to pour in some money into the community and social housing sector because they know that $415,000 subsidy per dwelling right, will ensure that they make a profit, which they have to, for their superannuance. It is madness. Apart from the Greens, 
everybody seems to be jumping up and down and saying, isn't this wonderful? Isn't this wonderful? The government is now providing money to the private organisations and giving them the giving them the, the titles to those homes. What's the problem with building public housing? Why do we have to do it through the private sector? If you're going to give a $415,000 taxation subsidy, I mean subsidy from taxpayers' funds to build one bloody dwelling, why can't that money be used directly to build public housing, which is publicly managed? The thing about something being publicly owned means that everybody has access based on need. There is no picking and choosing who your tenants are going to be. And the thing about living in public housing is you have security of tenure. And that is so important when you have children. And remember, many people in public housing find themselves in public housing because they are part of a one adult family. There is nothing more important for a child's education than housing security, not in just in terms of having a place to live, but in terms of developing relationships, lifelong relationships, by allowing them to go to the same schools, the same sporting clubs. And we hear over and over again the story of children who've lived in public housing, including our beloved Prime Minister, Mr Albanese, you should know better, using that stability as a springboard to improving their lives and the lives of their children. What is wrong with this country? What is wrong with state governments, especially the Victorian state government and the Commonwealth government, when they're not willing, not willing to use the word public and build public housing for this country's people because there is no privately housing solution to the housing crisis. The only solution, that's right, only solution, is a rapid expansion of public housing because public housing should not just be for people who find themselves in dire emergency situations. Public housing should be for everybody who cannot afford to buy private housing. For example, in Singapore, if you reach the age of 35 and you haven't been able to access a private dwelling, you're automatically part of the public housing sector. In Germany and Austria, I think 40% of people live in subsidised public housing. And the list goes on and on. But in this country, where we worship, that's right, where we worship the dollar, housing is now a commodity. It's an investment vehicle where people are giving a tax advantage through negative gearing for only more than one home, while others 
are paying 30, 40, 50, even 60% of their income to keep a roof over their head, whether it's rent or mortgage. It's just extraordinary. This is madness personified. So if you are interested in the public housing struggle, it doesn't matter where you are in Australia, you can start it today. I encourage you to have a look at the two websites, Public Housing Everybody, sorry, two Facebook pages, Public Housing Everybody's Business and uh, Defend and Extend Public Housing. Now, if you are in Victoria and you find yourself in Melbourne, we do have a vigil on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House every every Thursday, 12 to 1, and then we have a light lunch down the road, down at the Paramount. So think about it. It's an important struggle. Let's move on. Why does nothing seem to change in this country? Vested interests. And I spoke about at the beginning of the program paying homage to power and wealth, how our political representatives pay homage to power and wealth on a daily basis. It's vested interests. And what's a vested interest? It's a fancy word for saying it's people who've acquired wealth or who exercise power doing everything possible to ensure that power and wealth is not intruded on. You know, everything possible. And that's why we never seem to get to the point of passing legislation in Parliament that has significant impact on people. Because every time some government wants to pass that legislation, we have vested interests coming together to sabotage any possibility, not just of that legislation being passed, but of that actually legislation being introduced into Parliament. And while we continue to be spectators, spectators, will we leave it to somebody else, you know, to make the effort, to make the changes that are necessary, nothing will change. Because ultimately, unless the power of those vested interests, unless the wealth of that vested interest, those vested interests is challenged, broken down and redistributed, nothing will change and that's the story it's vested interests which determine the fate of millions of us on a day-to-day basis nuclear power oh isn't it nice the liberal national party opposition government in waiting now thinks nuclear power is the solution to the climate emergency which they claim didn't exist yeah as i keep saying It's a wonderful, wonderful world we live in. Now, a little bit of information. Now, those of you who are coming to the Public Interest Before Corporate Interest Lunch today, that's the 28th of uh, February at Seaford. There's a new venue, and I've got all this conflicting information about this new venue, but I'll do the best I can. Starts at 12, finishes at 2. It's at Giggles, G-I-G-G-L-E-S, Cafe at Unit 136 Wells Road in Seaford, which I'm told is just across the road from the Cannanook Railway Station, which is the last railway station before Frankston Station. And the venue is actually at the back of a bike shop called Velo, V-E-L-O. So hopefully you will find it. 
Now, if you want further information about public interest before corporate interest, go to their website, pibci.net, P-I-B-C-I.net. You can join online. That's right. Facebook pages you could go to. Public housing, everybody's business. Defend and extend public housing. Uh, my Facebook page, Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the public. YouTube channels, public interest before corporate interests, josephtoscano.nam. The list goes on and on. Don't forget uh, that uh, James Strata Day on the 1st of March, which is this Friday, and put it in your diary, open day at the West Papuan office. will be on Sunday the 7th of April where Dr Jacob Rumbiak will be talking about the ramifications of the election of Subianto, an alleged war criminal and a, a man who was drummed out, given a dishonourable discharge from the Indonesian military forces because of his patchy history. So it should be fascinating. So listen again, listen next week on the Anarchist World this week. And uh, don't forget, you can write to us at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can email us at anarchistage at yahoo.com. The program is a podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death's construction. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger! Become a subscriber and support Radical Radio. Call 03-9419-8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.